G'day and welcome to the potty in which I connect with some of the most influential guests from across Australia and the globe to share their very inspirational stories. I was born with cystic fibrosis, a chronic illness in which I was told would most certainly ruin my life. But like many of the incredible humans that I have on this show, I'm on a mission to prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we choose to respond to them. I'm your host, the captain of the ship and the man in charge, Bradley J. Drybra, and this is a lot to talk about. Mitch Wallace, how are you, mate? Mr. Brad, I'm well, brother. How are you? I'm very well. I feel like this is a long time overdue. We had a little mishap in connecting and getting this locked in in the first case through Mm -hmm. um, PR and management. And, you know, it's always, I think, sometimes easier to talk to the source. So I'm glad that we eventually got here. And your story is incredible. What you're doing is honestly remarkable for everyone involved with or affected by the mental health space. So it's a pleasure to have you here. Right back at you, man. And I'm not sure, I haven't asked you yet what category you would consider yourself to be. Uh, I know that you've come into this space through a physical lens and, you know, uh, how to deal with sickness in the body, but I can see you're very much passionate about how that affects the mind, uh, agnostic to any type of physical suffering. So I think we meet each other on that level for sure. But what, what, what category would you say that you're in? Category in terms of the podcast or who I am as a human. What is your why? My why. So I would say that if I had to put my purpose down in a mission statement, it's to uplift and inspire hope in others through story. I think that the the integral reason behind starting the podcast, the foundation of it, was a passion for storytelling and a curiosity for what conversation does for us as human as human beings. And mm. I could identify a number of conversations in my life that had had profound impact on me as a human being and the direction I wanted to take. And I got curious with, you know, those conversations that have a real impact on me, what sort of impact would they have on other human beings? And what sort of indirect impact would story and someone's specific story or individual experience have on the next generation of people who want to walk that path. And we can identify so many of those examples in society whereby, you know, you watch a documentary or you listen to someone that you look up to on a podcast or you're inspired by their work. And you can almost have the assumption that, oh, they must just have this incredible talent or were born with this gift, or they must've been handed this opportunity that is so out of reach for me because look at what they're doing and, you know, and the success that they're having and often in getting to the bottom of these stories and these experiences, you unlock the truth of it. And the truth of it is often a lot of hard work, you know, many months of, or many years in a lot of cases of self-discovery to identify what that gift or passion is, you know, many no's along the road. And, you know, that one, yes, that has then put them in a path where we now get to see the success and, And I thought, you know, if I dedicate a bunch of my time and a huge period of my life to trying to, but likely never mastering this art of conversation and storytelling and connecting with some incredible human beings, it may just go a long way in helping some other people find their path in life. And it's such a blessing three and a half years later, here we are. But I want to identify something that I just said there that feels like a perfect segue for you to jump in and start sharing some of your story. You know, I spoke about that moment where it all clicks and you go, oh, that, that person, I understand them. It's like looking at a mirror and experiencing through their story, something that hits me right in the heart and makes a lot of sense. And I know that you had one of those moments in 2016, as you described in a clip that I seen you were at your lowest point at your rock bottom, you know, struggling with your own mental health. And you seen a young man who was nobody famous at the time, share his own very vulnerable experience on YouTube. And I remember hearing you say that for the first time, you feel like someone understood you. Talk to me about that moment. Yeah. A YouTube video saved my life and changed it forever. 
and would end up prompting me to now work full-time in the mental health space and share a story of my own in the hopes that I could be him, Harris, for someone else, which ended up starting a global movement of people drawing and tattooing hearts on their arms and, and coming forward and being someone else's reason to believe. And I don't think I would be here talking to you today, Brad, without seeing that miracle really, and for lack of better words, unfold in real time back then, because I think a lot of the pain we experience in life isn't actually the problem we're going through. It's the narrative that we tell ourselves about it. So as someone who'd experienced anxiety since the age of seven years old, who had panic disorder and as a teenager who experienced depersonalization to the point of thinking that I was going to snap and go crazy at any point in time, major depression and a myriad of other things in the DSM. Uh, most, the most damaging thing that ever happened to me was the narrative of I'm crazy and I'm a bad person. That was so much harder to carry than the actual manifestation or symptoms of living with a mental health issue or even going through a hard time, like breaking up with a girlfriend or having financial issues or whatever. And I didn't know that, that the swelling around a problem does more damage than the problem itself until I saw this guy's story and in, in a single moment felt truly understood. And that is the medicine to letting go of all the unnecessary layers of shame and guilt and isolation and loneliness, the I'm crazy, the I'm a bad person stuff, which in and of itself, life becomes less painful even without removing the problem. But what it also does is give you the space, willingness and belief to go toward the thing that you've been running away from your whole life. And I think the six most powerful words I've ever learned is that the truth will set you free. And most of us exist on the outer layer of our life, just oscillating around shame, just constantly infected by I'm crazy, I'm unlovable, I'm broken, I'm blah, 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 blah. And I think when we have conversations and we hear stories, it's essentially the strongest anti-inflammatory you can ever take. <laughs> it is the thing that removes the, the outer layers that are designed to protect you, but actually keep you sick and finally allow you to realize who you truly are. And, and it is through that process where you find a shit ton of resilience and what joy actually means. Yeah, that's so powerful. You know, the thing that really stood out to me there, which I I can imagine that many people would struggle with, is that negative self-talk you had in your youth. The, I'm a bad person, I'm crazy, I'm going to snap. I wonder for you, Mitch, did that make you withdraw from society and retract or did it encourage you to almost self-sabotage in the way that you interacted in the world? There would be times of withdrawal for sure, but I don't think uh, even as a, you know, masculine-ish man, I think I have a big feeling side as well, but I've never defaulted toward the lose myself in drink and drugs and hyper shut down and things like that or pull away from people. But there was definitely an overdose on pretending you know, I'd still be out and amongst society, you know, youngest intern ever at Microsoft by 25, I was a global product manager living in Seattle, bachelor of commerce degree, shit ton of friends having a ball. Uh, but most of that was a mask. So that was my primary tool is letting a quicksand of self-worth and, and esteem shield a very, very, very fragile, broken boy within. You know, I hear a lot of people talk about, and I can somewhat relate to this in my own life, using your pain as fuel. You know, if, if you use your pain as fuel to get from a place in which you don't want to exist, whether that be mentally, physically, or, you know, and, and moving in the right direction, that that can be a really powerful thing. And I, I have no doubt it is. The one thing I often wonder is how long can that be sustainable for? You know, so what, it sounds like you had some immense success and I think you're a living, breathing example of that right now with what you're doing. And there's no doubt that there's no doubt to me that 
all of the challenges you faced are the reason you are who you are doing what you're doing. And I think, you know, that's immense credit to you. But at what point in time did you make an, an effort to try to rewrite that narrative and really face that hardship and that pain? I don't think you can rewrite your narrative before you first accept it. And what I mean okay. by that is, you know, we, again, I was, I was running away forever. I did not want to lift up the hood. I wouldn't have lift up the hood ever had it not been for me getting to a point where I was so ready to die. <laughs> and thankfully in that moment, that crucible of that threading of the needle, I was intercepted by a story that would change my life. But the reason why I'm such a fan of those six words, the truth will set you free is because you, you can't make a change until you meet yourself at point A, but we can't accept point A until someone comes along and says, you're okay, man. It's okay. You know, I've never seen an alcoholic, for example, get sober without first saying I am an alcoholic. I've never seen someone improve a relationship with their partner until they first say, shit, there's probably things I could be doing better. But it's so hard to swallow that because it's guarded in shame. I've never seen someone become more optimistic if they have a skeptical mindset until they first accept with themselves, shit, I'm probably viewing the world here in a very negative way. Like you cannot change until you first accept. And some of us get thrust into acceptance because of rock bottom. Now, I don't advocate for people hitting rock bottom first by any means, but it's a pretty fucking good trampoline because you've got no ego left to hide behind and you can finally start to accept, okay, maybe things are not okay. And that's when the change can actually be let in because you're not resisting, resisting, resisting. And, you know, in some ways I have the fortunate privilege nowadays of being somewhat of an alchemist. You know, I believe that my one of, if not the purpose of my life is to transmute pain into meaning. And, you know, like an alchemist would turn something, you know, a, a material or a metal into another form of chemistry like gold. And I've just, as someone from a young age, maybe I learned this from my mom. I just refuse to believe that pain is, is meaningless. That is a very, to me, depressing, unacceptable <laughs> worldview. And so now I am on the cons a, a constant pursuit of how do I not let what happened to me happen to anyone else? And, or if I slip, how do I share learnings along the way as much for me as it is for anyone else? Good friend of mine who I'm actually dropping a podcast with today, Daniel Glenn, we've recently connected is an incredible human being. Daniel was telling me that one of his favorite movies is The Princess Bride. It's his like go-to when I'm sick movie, throw that on, makes mm -hmm. me feel a little bit better about life. And he loves this line from the movie where, can't remember which character it is, but the character says, princess, life is pain. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of what we experience in life comes with pain. And I think that's important because without pain, there is no reference to measure or there is no way to measure the joy of happiness and, you know, those feelings of meaning and purpose and joy and all the great emotions that we experience in life. There's a Tony Robbins quote that's meant a lot to me, and that is pain is inevitable. Suffering is a choice. And I believe that what you're saying about the acceptance is what allows us to remove ourselves from the constant suffering that so many of us often get caught in. And I wonder, you know, I've heard people talk about, um, unconscious incompetence and then that next stage being conscious incompetence and I wonder that like that acceptance takes you from unconscious to the conscious incompetence and then doing the work that you've done now and that you're teaching other people to do and understanding how understanding how to keep your mental health topped up understanding what goes into a life in which you can then be conscious and competent with your mental health is, is that maybe a good way of sort of explaining in a very brief and simple way, some of the steps of moving towards 
you know, being on track with your mental health? Yeah, I, I definitely, the, uh, pain is, is inevitable. Suffering is optional. That to me is kind of the same metaphor I was, I was explaining before problems are painful. It is the stories or the narrative that you relate to the problem where suffering exists. That is where most of the actual pain comes from. Um, not the real life situation. And, you know, that for me is a very empowering truth because it means that we have choice. Uh, now in terms of the conscious incompetence that definitely resonates, but I think that that is more of a head thing than what I'm talking about here, which is more of a heart thing. I think you feel in your heart shame and denial and guilt and, this really, really negative self-talk. And so, yes, part of it is bringing the self-awareness to the foreground to know, shit, I'm actually not okay. But for me, it's that next step, which is I want to do something about it. Because there's a ton of people that go to conscious incompetence or even conscious competence and still stay sick and still are very unhappy. The heart then has to kick in to say, I'm willing to go through more pain ironically in order to gain freedom and this is something i'm a big believer in even though i am the feelings guy my charity is called heart on my sleeve i'm a huge proponent of resilience i.e the ability to sit and handle difficult emotion and it's a skill that we're not leaning into enough i mean we over index on the vanity metrics in Australia of physical pain, we glorify people going to the gym in a healthy lifestyle, which is great. Um, I think sometimes it can be excessive, but we're so okay with putting our muscles into tension in order to seek growth. But when it comes to emotion, the moment we feel any tension, we think that something's going wrong. That's not the case. The moment you feel tension, something's about to go right. But because it's hideable if that's a word from ourselves as much as other people so often we do not put tension on the emotional muscle and therefore we atrophy and go backwards and you know five years later we find ourselves in our late 20s early 30s or after going shit why do I suck at relationships why is there conflict all around me why do I feel depressed why am I anxious why do I not have the capacity to experience emotions like other people look to have like fulfillment and love and the reason is, is because you're, you have an inability to go toward tension. And I think, you know, that then feeds into a masculinity discussion, which is there's a part of it, which guys should suck it up and get on with it. Now, I believe that there is a part where anyone, men inclusive, need to commit and fucking push through some hard stuff. But the avoidance of emotional hard stuff and just sucking it up, i.e. trying to bypass the feeling part, that's not actually courageous. That's fucking easy. It is easy to not feel, suck it up in inverted commas, and yet everyone else is going to pay the tax on that in form of your, your aggression, your depression, your anxiety, etc. What is truly strong is feeling the shit you do not want to feel so as to know that there is a payoff of that in the terms of emotional freedom from the self-awareness, the processing, and the lessons that come from feeling that not to get stuck in it, but to move beyond it. Because in, in my experience, you got to be real to heal. Uh, if an emotion exists, if a situation makes you feel something and you avoid feeling it, there is a tax to pay. You cannot outrun it. It will be paid in the form of dysfunctional relationships, shitty feelings, poor performance at work or all the above. Uh, so, you know, my call to arms as a society is, um, get into your your feelings, not from a weak perspective, but from the strongest perspective possible. I love what you said there. You've got to be real to heal. I think that's really powerful. And, it, and it's quite interesting what you're saying here because it's making me think, you know, I've done a little bit of research around masculinity and femininity for a podcast episode a few months back. And the thing that come to me as maybe my conclusion personally on the experience of both of those energies is I think that a lot of people mistake that men are only masculine and females are only feminine. We have and can tap into both of those energies as men or women. However, the masculine energy to me seems very action-oriented. 
And the feminine energy is very emotionally oriented. And I think that that feminine energy, that emotion of being able to, as you said, first accept it is maybe where a lot of men go wrong. They choose not to tap into that emotion, to understand it, to feel it, to accept it. And they just try to action themselves out of it without really knowing where to go or what to do. And I think the action is really important, as you said, right? But it's, you know, first that acceptance piece. For you, you know, you went on to study a master's degree in psychology. Was this post you having, you know, this, I guess what you'd call rock bottom in 2016? And was that a way that you really allowed yourself to accept it, but now start to understand it is in the study of mental health? Yeah, I'll definitely touch on that, but you raised a really good point. I just want to tie a, a bow on that. Um, lol at that metaphor, a bow talking about masculinity. Um, <laughs> but that is the, it, this is such a huge area for psychology at a very biological level that I wish we spoke about more, this concept of energy and Here's the kicker and the irony is that when you're in hyper-masculine, it's going to manifest in aggression, depression. Uh, it's going to manifest in a lack of motivation, a lack of clarity, a lack of stability for people to hold on to you, like emotionally or motivationally, et cetera, all these things. Now, getting out of the masculine, hyper-masculine, because I believe men who identify as such should be in their masculine as the primary energy. That's why a yin and a yang has a tiny dot in the middle of it. You're supposed to be primarily there, but you use a little bit of the opposite to balance yourself. There's a droplet and that droplet is the key. But the thing is when we're hyper-masculine, our intent is to want to fix and go straight to, and, and we look in such all or nothing ways that we think that the answer to go a little bit more feminine is to become a complete puddle or start wearing dresses or whatever. And it's like, dude, that's, if you think that's the answer, that is evident that you're in your hyper-masculine because you're thinking way too black and white. Like, and that's why people stay stuck. The cure to that is to actually drop a little bit of feeling in, but you can't see that solution if you're so on the extent. So, you know, uh, that droplet in the yang or the yin, depending on how you look at it, will be the medicine to just slow down a second and to learn how to connect because men do best when we are fully connected in with our brothers and sisters and with ourselves, so that we don't develop arrogance and narcissism, which is i.e. a lack of connection um, that will end up being our downfall. Now, to answer your question about psychology, I did that degree not to go on and become a therapist or whatever else. It was, in all the ironies, my way of avoiding therapy. I was so scared to go to a therapist that literally my logic was, I'll just become one. And so I took annual leave from my job in order to start school at Columbia University in New York and the moment I arrived there, I remember in the first hour, just having this whole body realization that this is what I was put on the earth to do. And I haven't doubted it since. And so through the frameworks that satisfies the part of me, which is the OCD, the masculine, having a container to put stuff in, I think that's helpful, but you're not going to get better just by doing that stuff, you then have to put it into action and do the feeling and the healing. That's where the rubber meets the road. It's really interesting to me that you say that. I think we often, it's almost this idea that if we become an expert in something, we're never challenged by it again. Mm. And I think it's, it's such a male thing to do is, you know, you, you read a book or you study something and you're like, well, that's the end of those problems. I guess I'll, um, I'll just go on and master that field now. Um, it's ironic that we all do that in areas of our life, right? But I wonder for, you know, through your study and through your learnings and now through much of the work you do, have you identified, and I'll preface this with a story, have you identified a difference in treating and dealing with depression for men and women? Because I heard a story in which there was a, a case, I believe it was 
around the war where there was a psychology ward in a hospital in London, I believe. And as bombs were dropped on the city, they found that the women who had been in this program and in this ward for a long time were responding well to the treatment. The men weren't. And obviously there'd be exceptions to that rule. But in this case in which then the city was under attack, all of a sudden the men sprung to action to protect, to serve, to do what they needed to do. And they found that immediately post that experience, all of the men had a significant improvement in their mental health and started to overcome some of the challenges and really face some of the challenges that they had. And it was this, I guess the proviso was that men need a mission and they need a purpose. And, and that's really important for men to heal from mental health challenges. I wonder what your experience with that is. Yeah, I think all diagnosis uh, or experiences putting a non-clinical label on it have variances by gender and age and, and stuff like that. I think depression for a lot of people is actually a, a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose. It is also disconnection. So meaning, connection, uh, and also trauma, or let's say that another way, sadness. So one of the myths about depression is that you'll notice someone be sad. Actually, the first thing you'll notice is them be hyper irritable, particularly in men, because anger is easier on the ego than vulnerability. Now that is an iceberg pain. 90% that's sitting beneath the surface is actually some type of insecurity and it's manifesting as the 10% irritability on top. So talking about depression for, for men feel most happy. And I use that word, probably a more correct word would be fulfilled and joyous or alive when they feel that they're offering value to the world. We are contributing. We are being in service. We are protecting to use your words. Um, and we get even more value from that when we're doing it in association with other people, connection. So if you can pursue something that is hard and involves overcoming, that has some type of benefit to other people than yourself and is done in collaboration with others, that is the best chance you have outside of antidepressants at finding true happiness. Um, now for women, it's a similar story. I think more so on the connection than the meaning and purpose thing. But for men, like I, I've done a lot of reading around Viktor Frankl, for example, Holocaust survivor, man's search for meaning. I made a, a TikTok video about this recently where from what I can decipher in his school of psychology, in order to find meaning, there has to be two ingredients, which is other and hard. Said another way, you can never find any type of purpose or fulfillment if it's self-based and it's easy. Guess what the brain wants to do, left unchecked? Be selfish and be calorically efficient. <laughs> Therefore, meaning left un... If we don't investigate our search for meaning, our personal search, we will never find it. You have to go out and seek it to some extent because... Um, by putting yourselves in positions where adversity must be overcome and that it does not benefit you, which we can often do when we're getting in depressed mindsets is close down and become really insular and selfish. We're going to further eat into that hole. And that's why substance abuse and escapism is so rampant in men because we don't know the last thing we want to do is go towards harder stuff. That's other focus. We go internal easy. Let's numb, numb, numb. Um, and the gym and working out and getting physically fit, it's not the way that you look that's giving you happiness. It's the fact that you've stuck at something that's hard. Now, it's not going to fully fill you up because there's no benefit to other people. That's only going to give you half the cake that you need to find true meaning and purpose. It has to benefit someone else for you to feel whole. Once that happens, you're good to go. Yeah, it reigns so true for me. You know, personally in, in 2020, when I left my former career and started this podcast and started my charity event, it made the most significant difference to how I felt about myself. And 100%. I've seen the most incredible improvement in my mental health. Thankfully, I was never 
deeply challenged by my mental health. I had my periods of, you know, of a lull or a challenge or a little bit of adversity with it, but it's just had such a significant impact on my life. And I remember a particular moment, I released my first three episodes on the same day. And the day after releasing them, I got a message about the second episode. And that episode was with an organization called Talk To Me Bro that was founded here in Wollongong, where I live. And they, you know, the organization was started by two friends, um, one being the friend of a gentleman who had passed, the other being the, the partner of that gentleman that had passed. And it was all about trying to help men open up and provide a space for that, to provide community initiative for men to connect, to provide them with education. They've done an incredible job over the last few years. They've really grown as an organization. And I remember having a a girl who lived locally reach out to me and say that that episode had helped her connect with a partner who was really grieving the loss of his father. She's like, I've been struggling to connect with him for months. This has just opened the door for, for us to connect again. And I think it's made a really significant impact on not only his life, but their relationship. And I remember looking at that message and I could not wipe the smile off my face. It just felt more significant than any paycheck I'd ever received or any accomplishment I'd had personally. But far out, something, a conversation that I had that I released to the world has just had a significant impact on someone's life. That feels really rewarding. There's something in this and that becomes somewhat addictive. And it's almost just like a light at the end of the tunnel. You're like, I'm going to move towards more of that. And I just think that has such an impact on so many people. You see, you know, people rise to the occasion when they become, you know, parents. People people rise to the occasion when they see a mate in need and they're able to step up for them. Such an incredible feeling as human beings. And I think that we often forget where we come from, what our past is, you know, the more prehistoric life of, you know, hunt and gather, provide, protect. It's very community community oriented. It was never for the self. You didn't just hunt to feed yourself. You were on a hunt to feed your community, your people. And it's we're so removed from that now with the comfort that we have. And I think we totally. we fall into this funny little period in in our lives in which we're the first real generation to come head to head with this device that can be fit in our pocket that makes us feel somewhat connected to everyone. But that connection is never as real as looking someone in the eyes, you know, and being next to to a human being and feeling each other's energy and being there for each other. And I think that whilst the phone provides incredible opportunities to be more consistently connected, to do the, the work that you and I are doing and to, you know, be engaged in a community in which you may have never come face to face with because of distance or challenges or complications, it can't be the only connection. You know, I think that we're looking now at some scary statistics in which, you know, there's a lot of talk about loneliness at the moment in that I believe one in three people are reporting that they feel lonely. I believe it's the, the UK that's appointed a um, secretary for loneliness. The US has reported loneliness, a pandemic. All righty. We just had some technical difficulties the internet is playing games on it. So I think where we cut out brother is I asked you your, what do you think is the the catalyst for this loneliness epidemic that we're facing? Yeah. I said before that I feel like my life's goal is to transmute pain into meaning. And I think one of the key enablers or tools that we use when we're alchemizing pain into meaning and what I spend most of my days doing is teaching people how to connect. Uh, I've built a program called Real Conversations, for example, and that program's been distributed to hundreds of thousands of people, some of the biggest companies in the world, Microsoft globally, American Express, Lend, Lease, Legoland, KPMG, many, many others. And it's this syllabus or this five-stage framework that can make someone up to 250% more connected to someone experiencing emotional distress. Um, once you go through the program, I'm incredibly proud of what, what we've built. And essentially, if you boil the whole thing down, like half a decade of research that I've personally done, master's degree, 20 years of lived experience, all the interviews I've done, if you boil it down, everyone has one core objective when they're having conversations with others, particularly if it's, 
someone who's not okay. And that is to be helpful. The number one mistake people make is that their goal is to fix someone, i.e. they use their traditional tool, which is IQ from the brain and the head. They see a problem, the biology kicks in due to mirror neurons, conditioning and whatever else. We go toward the thing that they're telling us about and we try and make that thing go away. As a result of that, we aren't helpful because actually what research shows and anecdotal evidence will tell us for out the wazoo, in order to be helpful when it comes to emotions, not cognitive things or analytics, or, you know, if you've got a hole in the plumbing and you want the water to run and someone comes over to, to do something about that, you don't ask them how they feel. You just, you know, this needs to be 20 degrees higher. But if someone says, my dad's just died, don't go to your head and try and fix it. The number one goal or enabler of helpfulness when it comes to emotional-based conversations is to connect. And it goes against our hard wiring when everything we want to do is pull them away from that. The biggest mistake from fixing to the biggest opportunity, which is connecting, is learning how to listen and get curious with someone. I'm not just talking even about instances where something really deep and bad has happened, but I've sat in so many groups of men and women, to be honest, where the conversation, sorry to be judgmental, but just to keep it real, is fucking boring. It's just bullshit. It's just like, how's the footy? How's things? Top line? Yeah, work's busy. Oh, yeah, work's busy. Da, da, da. There's no curiosity there. There's no like, oh, tell me more about that. What's going on? What's the hardest part? Or how's things with your boss? When they say that, does that irritate you? Why? Have you felt irritated in the past? How have you dealt with things like that previously? Like there's just this innate aversion to any type of depth, particularly in Australia. I fucking love Australia and I'm not shitting on our culture, but man, we have a way of just like kicking the can down the road on the top line. People are lonely because they want to be fucking understood. That's it, man. Like it is not quantity. It is quality. People are yearning to be known. When someone says I'm um, I'm having a fight with the missus, instead of saying, oh, that sucks, you know, you'll be right. She'll get over it. Um, there's plenty of good times ahead, whatever else. Or, well, can you stop, you know, offering a solution? What about if you did this, this, and this? That's not what they want to be asked. They want to be asked as why is that affecting you? When are you arguing? Tell me more about that. With Just leave it hanging. Or everything in our biology wants to tie that loop because our neurobiology says, do not leave something uncertain. You know, research shows that we would prefer something that is unhelpful and toxic and unhealthy. We would take that over what's certain. That's why people go to jobs that they hate and stay in relationships that are toxic because the fear of the unknown makes the brain believe that this is more safe. And it's a myth. It is absolute and utter bullshit. What people need is to feel heard because most pain is sitting in the narrative that surrounds a problem, not the problem itself. And if all you do is offer love and a, and a listening ear to that outer narrative, most of the pain will go away. And they already know how to fix their own problem 90% of the time, more, 99% of the time. What they want someone to do is take interest. Man, you've hit the nail on the head for me there because, and it's funny you mentioned this, on Wednesday I'll be catching up with a good friend of mine, Brett Kennellan. We've both been doing a bit of, work, bit of work in the keynote speaking space together, sharing our stories and, and talking a little bit on purpose resilience perspective. But we've just built a keynote that we've started to run through corporates and some school environments and that keynote is on connection. And you know what we've found to be really powerful through connection um, both through interviews, talks on stages and our own personal connections. And we as two younger guys feel very privileged to have incredible friendships where deep conversation is the norm. Like I go for a run on Wednesday morning with two of my best mates and we're hard pressed to find enough time. We usually spend like two hours together 
to get through just maybe one topic about, like it's usually the first thing that's brought up. We almost speak about that for the next two hours because there's such a curiosity. And what, what Brett and I have found is exactly what you said. Curiosity and listening is so important and just understanding empathy, you know, and, and that masculine thing that I, I struggle with this in my own life. Sometimes I feel like I have to try and solve people's problems and I have to check myself all the time that if I'm in their shoes, what do I need right now? I don't need old mate, know-it-all Brad to come in and tell me exactly what i got to do about my situation. I just need him to shut the fuck up and listen. <laughs> Correct. And it's often you're trying to like, it's almost you're just trying to like bounce that off someone just so you can hear it out loud, process it yourself. And then you're like, oh, I know what to do about that. I don't need him to tell me. So I love what you're saying. I love what you're saying. And it's what do you think therapy is? And, Even and therapy, where they're, where they're trained to fix you, most of it is just letting you feel heard. And then they might go and like tighten some screws at the end there. But therapist is just really good at reflecting back exactly what you already know, but in a way that allows you to listen to yourself, ironically. And, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that giving people advice and solutions is always wrong. What I am saying is we got our ratio out of whack, you know, in a, in a head-based conversation, and this is what we've termed our IP within real conversations framework is called the golden ratio of support. And so a simple way to think about it, if it's head-based cognitive or in any way logical, spend 80% of the time problem solving, 20% of the time listening. If it is even in the territory of emotion, 80% listening, 20% problem solving, invert it. Mm, I like that. And, and the mouth to ear ratio should reflect that inversion. And that doesn't mean you can't problem solve. As I say, it means earn the right to give advice. If you jump in and tell someone advice straight away, it could be the fucking silver bullet to all of their issues. Break up with that person. They will not listen until you have listened first. Yeah, I love that. That's so beautifully said, earn the right to give advice. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Talk to me about, I know I'm conscious of our time here because I know that I've got an hour with you. You've got a busy day. I really want to talk about, you know, one thing I read is that you're doing a bit of work with the United Nations, or at least you did at one point, advising them on youth mental health. When you're sitting down with the United Nations, firstly, that's incredible. Um, I, I would... Somewhat worried that I'd be laughed out of the room if I was at the United Nations. I'm not sure I'm smart enough for that. You but are. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder what the the conversation is there and the advice. What what do they identify as some of the challenges that they're facing on a global scale, and what are some of the things that they're implementing now off the back of that advice? Um, I mean that that is, I think the PR people like to bias toward that as part of the CV, to be honest, when they're briefing in interviews, <laughs> I've done, it does uh, sound very impressive. <laughs> I've done a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I wouldn't, um, put that as one of the things that I would hang my hat on. I played a very small role in something, um, versus like, you know, stuff that we've built from scratch and distributed globally is something that I could say, yeah, inside out, I can tell you what the temperature check is on that. Um, so I, I just, I don't want to take credit for something that I played such a small part on. Uh, I, I can tell you though, that loneliness is at the epicenter of what they're trying to solve for youth, for sure. Um, connectivity to technology and the, the, the disproportionate loneliness that's coming from uh, tech connectivity, what is going on and what is going on is that we have a completely distorted definition of connection. And that is the, the quantity of people that you have access to. That is just not true. You can feel lonely in, in a room of a hundred people. You could have one person who gets you end to end and you, you will never, ever experience loneliness. So instead of building ways in which people can be around each other. You have to build ways that people can know each other. And a big part of that is the education and tools to rewire mistakes and then give them the right things to inject into conversation. Yes, that could be the right questions to ask and things like that, but more than anything, it's the right energy and tone that you bring. 
you know, our energy is doing most of the heavy lifting around a conversation. And, and you can tell when someone is genuinely curious and non-judgmental subconsciously more than consciously, there is antennas all throughout our brain that's designed to keep us safe. And we have inbuilt bullshit meters everywhere. <laughs> so if you're coming in with a aggressive, protected, unhealed trauma energy, you could say a you could read a psychological script to someone and they still wouldn't open up to you properly or feel understood or connected with you because you're emanating disconnection. So I'm a big believer that, you know, very rarely are people not connecting because of a non-willingness on someone's behalf to say what is real. People are itching to get things off their chest and be understood. It's actually the supporter and their ability to work on themselves. Going to therapy is the best thing you can do for other people, not just for you. You will find yourself experiencing the richness and fullness of relationships, i.e. the single greatest thing and most important thing in life, as per Harvard's longitudinal study on the greatest indicator of a quality of life is the quality of the relationships that you hold. The best thing you can do for your mental health is work on your ability to connect with others, hands down. Outside of your genetics, it's the most sensitive factor that will determine your mental health. Um, there, like you know, all that logic put together means invest in the way you make people feel, not just what you say. I love that you spoke there about your number one piece of advice would be go to therapy to help other people, so mm -hmm. that you are conscious of that that ability to connect and that reason to connect. If someone, let's say can imagine plenty of guys, this, this podcast is listened to by predominantly people between the age of 20 and 34, 60 or 65% of them are men, the other women. I'd be interested to hear for the people who go, I'm not going to go to therapy just yet. I'm not ready for that. What would your next piece of advice be? Are there some educational tools that you think would help them with understanding nah. connection? Bro, we're like, that's another thing you, you can tell I have gripes here <laughs> and the gripes are that like, we got to stop ticking boxes, man. We're so basic when it comes to mental health, we're just value signaling with like a random awareness post here and there. Everyone knows how fucked things are. Mental health is taking more lives between the ages of 19 to 45 than road accidents and heart disease, like number one killer. Let's not answer that through. Is there some tools? I'm not going to get to, we're not going to get to people by just telling them more shit, they got to feel it. And I'm going to say something that will hopefully cut through way more than any stat ever will. You're hurting people right now. Stop. Your lack of therapy is hurting people. Stop. It's not just hurting you. If you need a motivator to work on yourself and it can't be enough that I believe that humans should in our finite period of time experience the maximum amount of joy and living possible. If that's not reason enough, do it because everyone in your circle is affected and influenced by you. Make that good. I, I love that advice. Cannot make that good without therapy. <laughs> can, can I be the, um, the devil's advocate here? What about for the people who can't access a, a mental health care plan or don't have the money to go to therapy is that is there just something that they can do whether it's you know is, is there you know your, is it your podcast do you talk about this stuff so that people can understand how to feel better how they can engage with their emotions uh, is there something that they can do so those people don't feel hopeless yeah i mean there's i would say two things to that and I, i'm intentionally being provocative here now just because and, and i love it i love it i love it <laughs> it's just it's just because if I toe the line on the stuff that hundreds of your other guests have said, it's just going to be white noise. So I'm okay if people be like, fuck that guy, if it means that it actually gets through. Look, again, I'm just calling bullshit in terms of like, I can't afford therapy. I bet you can. It's Australia. Like, I know the cost of living right now is tough. I'm not taking away from that. I'm not trying to be privileged, ignorant, naive, but I am saying that there is a tiny sacrifice you could make right now on your weekly allowance that would enable you through the mental health care plan to somehow get to therapy. Now, the next question would be, but there's hardly any therapists available. And I'll say, yeah, but with half an hour extra research, you might be able to find someone, jump on the waiting list now, and it'll come around sooner than you think. 
Um, so I think that there is a lot of limiting beliefs and a lot of excuses that people just stop because the first barrier comes up. But if I know anything to do with success in life, like if you look at, if you interview any high performer, they will say the number one attribute of high performance is consistency and the ability to keep going when a barrier emerges. Any entrepreneur will tell you that mental health is no different. People who will thrive in the long term are people who won't give up the moment a barrier comes up. Now, if if cost is genuinely a concern, like I can't find the extra $50 a week or a fortnight somewhere by not getting that coffee or not going out or whatever, um, then there is so many free resources out, out, resources out there. My charity, Heart on My Sleeve, we run free support groups where you can jump in with incredible people who will walk you through a sharing circle and feel heard, which is essentially the primary thing that you're going to be looking for. There is lifeline available for people who are just like, I need to talk to someone. There is like so many resources out there. So it's just fear really that, that keeps people stuck. Yeah, I, lo I love that. I'll make sure I put some of those resources in the show notes as well for those of you listening who think you might need to tap into that. I want to thank you so much, brother. I'm, I'm wary of your time. As I said before, I know we're coming to the end of it. Thank you so much for being on the show. I know you're doing so many incredible things. You've mentioned your foundation. I mentioned briefly there your podcast and, and I'm sure there are a number of other um, resources that people can tap into to connect more with yourself and the conversations you're having. I'll make sure that they have all of those in the show notes. I want to thank you so much commend you thank on the work you, that you're doing. It's been a pleasure. And it feels like it's gone like that. That time just slipped away from us very quickly. It does. I'd love to leave just with a reflection, Brad, on your energy is the type of energy I would love to see in the world. Because the reason, yeah, the reason why we can have this conversation and the reason why people trust you to have conversations is, yeah, you're a good conversationalist, again, from the head, but your heart, people can feel your heart. They might not know they can feel your heart, but they can, I can feel it. And the reason why you and your best friends are having such beautiful conversations is because you're doing the work. You're doing the hard stuff that's easy to avoid, but look at the benefits that is coming as a result of that. Look at the things that you're attracting into your life. Look at the people that are leaning on you. And I bet you, if you ask them, it is way more than what you say, but it's how you're making them feel. Well, I appreciate that so much. And I can, I can speak to these have been the most conscious few years of my life in which I've really gone after the work, as you said, but they've also been the, the most challenging. And I have no doubt that without the action, the, well, the, firstly, the acceptance, as you said, and then the action to go and do what is necessary. Um, I don't think I'd be in the same spot. So I'm very grateful for your kind words. It's been a pleasure and to everyone listening, I'm sure you would have got plenty from that. So thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks, my brother. Thanks, brother. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognize the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling and as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week. Thank you.